0: Let's get started. Um, It's officially hunting season, so I thought I'd open with um, a hunting story. Uh, When I was a freshman in high school, my dad uh, took me and a buddy uh, pheasant hunting in western Kansas. We used to go every year, and and nothing changed from year to year except the person I would take, and this year was Mike Zielinski. And, uh, And it was warm. It was warm for opening weekend, so it was a little weird. It was like almost in the 70s. And, uh, so it was a bad year. Um, and it was just the three of us my dad, myself, our two dogs, and Mike. So we didn't have any blockers, so we didn't stand a chance of actually getting any pheasants. They were running miles ahead of us with just three of us, but we walked for miles. And, uh, and my dad used to like to walk through the nastiest thicket you could find, you know, the really, the really, uh, and this is back when there was actually quail. So we're also, you know, trying to get in the thick brush to find some quail. And Mike and I were 14, 15 years old. And we were bored 15 minutes in because there was no birds and, you know, we didn't want to walk forever. So we're, we're already, um, you know, uh, not having much fun. We were ready to leave. And and uh, suddenly, George, my dog, goes on point. I'm actually kind of in the woods in some really nasty stuff because we were looking for this covey of quail we thought might be in there. And, and the dog locks up on point. And I mean locks up, will not move. And so I kind of holler out to my dad and Mike who are out in the field next to me, you know, that the dog's on point. And my dad's like, well, try to release him and this dog won't move. Like he's just locked. And, uh, and so I kind of holler, you know, at George four times, he won't move. I take one step forward and this, uh, this doe and this fawn, I mean, 10, 15 yards in front of me, stand up out of the thicket and bolt off. And I was, you know, scared the bejeebers out of me. I drew my gun, you know, I'm ready to shoot at a deer. and. uh and I holler, it's just a deer, it's all right. You know, I start to walk, and the dog's still locked up. He won't move. So I was like, well, maybe I... I'm picturing this cute little covey of quail cuddled up next to the deer, you know, ready to jump up and let me shoot him. And uh, nothing happens. I take one more step, and this big old buck stands up, and he's like standing right in front of me, looking at me snorting. And I am seriously, with my 12 again shot, done, pointing at a buck's face, like, don't you even think about it. I will shoot you. And, uh and he turns and, and bolts off, you know, and uh, and uh, I, just about the time I started wetting my pants is when he ran off, but, um, but a little bit later, uh, you know, happens again, dog goes on point, will not budge, um, we, you know, try to release the dog, he won't move, so I get in and kick around in this little, and it wasn't a very big patch of grass, kind of kick around a little bit, and uh Wild turkey jumps up. He flushes a wild turkey, which sounds like a helicopter taking off when you're that close to one. And that scared the bejeebers out of me. But the best part was of this whole weekend of no birds was uh, we were passing through some woods just to get to a different field. And, and the dog points at this little patch of grass with nothing. And he will not come off. This is actually my dad's dog this time. He will not come off this patch of grass. And so we had kicked around there. Nothing happened. Nothing came out. Nothing flew out. So my dad finally says, you know, reach in there and see what's in there. And so, I was already in like a short sleeve shirt because it was so hot. And Mike still had a long sleeve shirt on and, and he put a glove on. So he reaches in there and, uh, he, re- he feels movement. So he grabs for it and he comes up with a full grown big old raccoon in his, in his hand. And, uh, and so this thing's s- screaming and flopping around in his hand. And it's like a it's like a sitcom movie. I'm 14 years old. I'm ready to shoot the thing. <laughs> and my, my dad's like, "Don't shoot him," you know, because I would have blown Mike's hand off. You know, a 15 year old at bored and with ADD and a 12 gauge shotgun's not a good mix. So, I did manage not to shoot Mike, and he eventually threw the raccoon as far as he could, and both dogs took off after the raccoon. And we spent the year seeing absolutely everything except for a single pheasant or quail. So, it was. Uh, it was a fun weekend, but those dogs um, just locking up on something and refusing to move um, came to mind this week as we talked about uh, as we talk about this week's saint. Um, we're in the, the final week of our series, Surrounded, which is this year's saint series. We spent the entire month of November basically kind of stretching out um, All Saints Day, which is November first, um, just digging into different people who have who have gone before us, and so we kind of make the whole month. All Saints Day, along with, you know, no shave November, you know, because my legs are way hairier than normal um, right now, but um, that's beside the point. Uh, so in this series, we've been trying to, to really get to the heart of Hebrews 12.1, where the author says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. And here's the deal, I know I've read this verse every single week now, but in years like 2020, um, I think it's important to remember that we are surrounded by stories of people who went through stuff like this. We're surrounded by people who endured well and followed Jesus well, even as the world was falling apart around them. We're surrounded by Jesus followers who faced pandemics. We're surrounded by saints who faced overwhelming economic challenges. We're surrounded by the people of God who fought for racial reconciliation. We're surrounded by the church who faced a society hell bent on running from God. And we're surrounded by people like you and me who drug that society kicking and screaming back into the light. We're surrounded by Christians who face cancer, who uh had more important relations their most important relationships in the world fall apart, who have lost loved ones, who serve Jesus under ungodly leaders who did all this while gathering around this same scripture that we gather around, people who have faced this before. And so it's re- it's important to remember that those stories surround us, that what we go through is not unique. People have done this before in the presence of God, and God saw them through. And so we do that every year in November. Um, we studied in week one Wanda Zumaraga, who was uh, uh, through the simple act of preaching and loving the people closest to him, Um kind of revitalized, became one of the most influential bishops in history. Um, then we studied Monica of Hippo, a mother um, to the incredibly influential theologian, um, St. Augustine. Monica literally changed the world by being a mom. She, she led her son to Christ, and, and he did this amazing work. And it's hard to imagine an Augustine without a Monica, and it's hard to imagine a church without an Augustine. Last week we studied Jonathan, the famous... BFF to King David. Um, Jonathan was this amazing soldier who didn't need the spotlight. He was rare even in his day. Um, He was content to let others take credit for his incredible acts of bravery, um, which was out of character for most people in his line of work. Jonathan's this weirdly humble guy who's really good at what he does, Um, and that was enough for him. He did it for the sake of, of doing it, not for the accolades and the and the credit that he got. Um, And this wins him the respect of his people, of his soldiers that fought for him. Um, And then it it, it comes to this incredible fruition through David, where he tells David that he knows David is going to be the king of Israel, and and he'd be honored just to serve at David's side. Uh, I think in a day when we live for likes and shares and, and viral exposure, Jonathan has a lot to say to us about what faithfulness looks like. Um, and today's saint um, is way tougher to talk about because he's uh, he's not obscure like kind of Jonathan and Monica and, and Zumaraga. Uh, instead, he's a giant. He's There's no doubt anyone in the room could probably get up and teach this lesson um, about today's saint because of his incredible influence. Um, there's so much information on this guy, it's really hard to figure out even where to start. But today we're going to talk about the great Billy Graham. Um, I simply do not have a chance to even come close to really telling all the great stories about Billy Graham. So um, this is barely a primer of this man's life. Uh, and you might be frustrated because you've got your favorite Billy Graham stories that you wish I'd tell. But, um, but I decided to kind of focus on one piece of the Billy Graham story that really bears on on open table in 2020. Um, Billy Graham was born in 18 or 1918 in Charlotte, North Carolina, to a dairy farmer, and he grew up very accustomed to work. But everybody in his family, um, when interviewed, says he didn't enjoy hard work much. Um, his brother says Billy Graham uh, really only cared about two things: baseball and girls. Um, he learned to read early, and uh, and loved to to read novels. His favorite was Tarzan, and he would. Uh, in imitating Tarzan, he would climb trees and, and do the Tarzan yell at any, any passerby or anybody driving by or cattle or livestock or whatever. And it drove everybody in town nuts because he would surprise you with his big Tarzan yell. And his dad said even back then he was practicing to be a preacher and uh, scream at people. But as a teenager, um, Graham, you know, uh, he was denied membership to the local youth group because he was too worldly um, so they wouldn't let him come to, to youth group. And some people think that that rejection, um, kind of, uh, shaped Billy's aversion to church. And some people think it was his aversion to church that made them reject him. But he didn't care much for church. He went when his parents made him, but he, he wasn't that, uh, he wasn't that drawn to the things of God. Until a farmhand on their dairy farm, Invited him to go see Mordecai Ham, uh, a traveling evangelist who was preaching in Charlotte, and uh, this guy uh, asked him day after day to go with him. And finally Graham gave in, and he rounded up some buddies and they went to this crusade in Charlotte. And uh, the first night Graham went, he was just kind of blown away by how many people were there, and uh, and he mostly spent his time people watching. He was like, "What are they getting out of this? What is so in?" And like compelling about this, like why would people pack into a tent to hear this stuff? And he he just didn't get it. And so he came back the next night just to 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 figure out what was you know so enthralling about this moment. And uh, it was three or four nights he went, and and every night you know he started to to hear more and more, and begin to wonder if maybe there wasn't something here. And and when he tells the story, he says I. I started to wonder if maybe I wasn't a sinner, even though I was a member of a church and, and, uh, and hadn't really thought this way before. I started realizing that I needed to be saved. And so on the very last night, on the very last verse of the very last hymn, Billy Graham finally went down front and accepted Jesus. And once he got home, he, he prayed um, the words that are fairly famous. He said, Lord, I don't know what's going on. Uh, and I don't know what any of this means, uh, but whatever it means, I need you to help me. And uh, and uh, supposedly everybody knew from that minute on, something had greatly changed uh, in Billy Graham. Um, he was in, wasn't interested in the same things anymore. He didn't talk about the same things. He started uh, going to church and taking notes and asking a million questions. And uh, And shortly thereafter, just with this new kind of hunger to know... Uh, Billy enrolled in the Florida Bible Institute, which is where he was when he kind of heard God's call to be a preacher. Um, And he simply couldn't see it. He argued that he wasn't smart enough. He didn't have the right background, the right education. He really had no real education. He certainly wasn't holy enough. He put up every argument that he could, but he couldn't lift this burden that he was supposed to proclaim the gospel. And all he could think was... uh, was how much his life was changed because Mordecai Ham came to his town, and all he could think was, "What if there are other people like that, who aren't going to listen to the gospel any other way? Am I willing to to not go and leave those people um, hopeless?" And so he finally surrendered and began to preach. And at first, it was Sunday night services in little country churches. Anybody who would let him come and, and speak, he did, and. He started to build a reputation. People were like, this is kind of a fiery young guy that wants to talk about the gospel. And so they started inviting him to Sunday morning services to speak. And and, uh, and so he was just kind of in this traveling preaching circuit in Florida with anybody that would have him. And he recalls the first time he was allowed to preach in a big church. And big back then was 100 people. I got to speak to it was a, The church sat, seated 100 people, and it was packed. And he preached. And he said that he... uh He gave an altar call at the end, which was the first time he'd ever done it. And 11 people came down to the front. And Billy Graham, this is going to be a tough one. Billy Graham was blown away uh, by the idea that he could do that. And he said, from that moment on, he never preached without giving an altar call. Um, Once he finished Bible college, uh, he became a uh, he helped start Youth for Christ. Became a full their their only full time employee. A full-time traveling evangelist for Youth for Christ. And over the next four years, he traveled over a million miles preaching the gospel. Um, he was building a reputation as this amazing evangelist. And, uh, and he was also building a community of kind of like-minded preachers. And he was, uh, they were forming this kind of close theological bond and they were studying the scripture together and challenging each other. And, uh, and toward the end of his run with Youth for Christ, um, it became kind of vogue amongst evangelicals to question the authority of Scripture. Um, some of the new archaeological evidence had been pulled up and kind of the impact of Darwinism on American culture at that time because just like barely ten years before were the uh, the Scopes Monkey Trials where they were trying to decide if they could teach evolution in the schools. And, and all of that was having an impact on the evangelical world. And a lot of the people that he had kind of put his faith in as comrades in this we're starting to question scripture and it, it and he was badly shaken and so he actually um because he greatly respected these men and he thought most of them were smarter than he was um he found their arguments compelling and so he stepped out of ministry for a bit uh to to sort out what was true about this bible was it trustworthy and uh so in typical kind of redneck fashion which i can totally appreciate he went out in the woods, got alone in the woods, and he took his Bible out and he was praying like, God, what do I do with all this? And he said he laid his Bible on a stump and, and said, Lord, um, it kind of came to him how he needed to approach it. And he said, I don't understand all this book, um, but I'm choosing to accept it by faith that this book is from you and it says exactly what you want it to say. Uh, and so from this day on, he goes, I know I accepted Christ this way by faith, and I'm going to accept your word by faith the same way. And uh, he said he walked out of the woods feeling a peace that never left him to, to his dying day. No matter what argument people would throw at him, he knew that he had chosen to take it by faith that God's Word was, was authoritative in his life. And so, uh, so he decided it was time to jump back into... <laughs> I must have said something funny because Siri's talking to me. Um, Siri's giving me more amens than you guys are. <laughs> <laughs> so around this time he also had another like gigantic change in his life um, he married the woman that he fell in love with at first sight uh, Ruth Bell was this woman that Billy had agreed like with a friend to meet even though he already had his eyes on somebody else that he was kind of pursuing they were like you got to meet this girl so finally just to kind of give in, he's like fine I'll meet her and, uh, and he says the second he saw her um, he was he was immediately in love he said that it took him several months to ask her out, but uh, after the first time he met her, he wrote home to his mom and said, I, I met the girl I'm going to marry. Um, I met her today. And so uh, so he met uh, Ruth Bell. They got married. And uh, having kind of the two biggest questions in his life answered, who am I going to marry and is the Bible real, uh, he was ready to start his own ministry. Um, incidentally, uh, people have... He kind of dove into, like almost immediately after marrying Ruth, he dove into this really intense full time ministry. And people have asked her, like, what it was like for him to be gone so much. You know, he would, when he left, it was for two months at a time, three months at a time, six months at a time. And then he would come home and they would spend a lot of time together and then he would leave again. And, and, uh, people have asked her how hard that was. And, and she said, you know, Uh, what everybody's found is that the only way she made it through was she was every bit as committed to saving souls as Billy Graham was. And she knew that that was how she did it by releasing him. Um, She was every bit as committed to the gospel as, as Billy Graham was. So um, even though she cried every time he left, she slept with his jacket so she could be close to his smell. Um, she, She knew that the most important thing in the world was to reach the lost. And she was committed to that. So, Billy Graham, after marrying Ruth, kicks off his, his own ministry. He rented um, a couple Barm uh, Barman Bailey tents in Los Angeles uh, and started a crusade of his own. Um, it was a couple-week crusade. And uh, first three nights, almost nobody showed up. You know, he's preaching to a handful of people in this huge tent. Um, and then on the fourth night, uh, this kind of really famous incident happened where he comes to the tent and there's hundreds of reporters outside the tent waiting for him, and he kind of comes up and and he's like, you know, what what are you what are you doing here? Like, automatically assuming it's some kind of huge scandal or something terrible, and uh, and one of them handed him uh, this crumpled piece of paper. It was a telegram with the now famous words from William Randolph Hearst, you know, the the kind of media mogul of the day, um, that said the all it said was "Puff." Graham, and I guess that means something to pre- to news people, Puff Graham, and so they all came to do that, to, to basically give this guy free press, um, and the next night, after these guys all watched the crusade, so it's a handful of people and a couple hundred uh, media uh, newspaper journalists, um, the next night was packed, so whatever they did worked. Um, and the crusade wound up going on. They had to rent a few more tents. And the crusade went on for eight uh, eight solid weeks every single night um, of preaching to people. Incidentally, one biographer um, said that in the crowd that third night was uh, this 80-some-odd-year-old woman who had been uh, William Randolph Hearst's school teacher. And she heard Billy preaching and and uh, called or telegrammed. Um, Randolph Hearst and was like, you got to get people down here to hear this guy, and so it's interesting to wonder what would have happened with Billy Graham if that lady had not been there that night. But um, Billy was preaching every single night of this crusade for eight weeks, and he ran out of sermons. He had no more sermons, and it's kind of funny. Like one of the things, uh, you know, it's a it's a lot to come up with something to say every single week, like just to preach, you know, 50 weeks a year. It's a lot to come up with something. I can't even imagine every night you've got basically that day to write a sermon for that night and just to keep that going. So he exhausted all of his kind of pre-written sermons. He's now trying to just keep up with a new fresh sermon every single night. He was actually calling friends like, "Do you have any sermon outlines you can send me? Like I need something." And uh, and one night he went into the to the kind of crusade committee and he was like, "We got to shut it down. I'm I'm out of stuff to say. I've got nothing else." And they were like. We have not had an empty seat yet. Like it's way too early to shut this down. And so he said he went to his hotel room and he threw his Bible on the bed and was like, God, if you want me to speak to these people, you got to give me the words because I'm out. And uh, and he said he felt God put a message in his heart. And from then on, that was how he got his messages. He prayed and said, God, I'm going to say what you tell me to say. And uh, and so the message, the crusade went on for a full eight weeks with a fresh message every single night. And this kind of launched his fame. He was on the cover of Time. He was everywhere. Everybody was talking about Billy Graham. He started, uh, uh, it kind of spread until he was doing this huge crusade in Times Square in 1957 that was put on television. It was the first Billy Graham crusade ever televised, and uh, and it reached millions of people around the country. Everybody was watching. It was the most watched TV presentation Um Uh, At that point, and uh, and this got him on talk shows. Um, People started wanting to talk to Billy Graham. He was he was on Carson. He was on Donahue, or um, uh, that's Woody Allen interviewing him. I don't know what that was for. Larry King several times, and people used to get frustrated with him for going on these secular talk shows. Um, But what's ironic, and if you go back and watch any of them, it does not matter what question they asked him. He turned it around. The gospel. He turned it around. You know, they were talking about his fame on Johnny Carson, and he was like, "You know, Johnny, I believe we're all sinners, even Ed." You know, like, and he's real charming with the way he would do it, but he would always find a way to, to preach the gospel even on secular television. Um, And around this time, uh, Billy Graham kind of ran into racism for the first time. Like, really, kind of engaged the problem. He had a crusade in the South. And when he showed up, they, they had the ropes put up for the, for the black section and the white section, which was law at the time. And so he didn't like it. He didn't think it was, it, it was fitting to pre- preach the gospel to a segregated crowd. And so he went to the head usher and he said, I'm going to need you to take those ropes down. Um, and the head usher wouldn't do it. He refused to do it. And so Billy um, got down and he went out in the stadium and, and took them off himself. He removed the ropes himself. And the head usher and most of the other ushers on duty quit, you know, um, because he was breaking the law. Billy was asking him to break the law, but, but he did, and um, and this kind of caused a bunch of problems. And of course, they told him there's going to be riots. There's going to be all kinds of things. White people aren't going to come, and uh, and there's a famous picture at the end of of these people. <laughs>
1: Standing at the altar, hand in hand, armed locked,
0: black and white, singing that song that he sang at the end of every single crusade that we sang or that we're going to sing at the end tonight and uh, so no riots, no no fighting, no just people coming to Jesus together the way they're supposed to um, in Arkansas during the riots uh, around the school desegregation, he had a crusade in Ar- Little Rock planned, and and the uh, the white citizens council called and pressured Billy Graham to leave the ropes up. They had heard what he does, and they were like, "You cannot do that here. There will be bloodshed if you do." And so they were putting a lot of pressure on him, and and uh, and he said, "Not only if if you're not going to let me take those down." Not only will I not come, but the world will know why. And, uh, and so they let him come down, and, and by this point, he was used to it. He just showed up with his team, and they started taking the ropes down themselves. They didn't even ask anybody to do it anymore. And again, in Little Rock, while, you know, not far away, people were tearing each other apart over schools, um, he had a stadium full of people holding hands, mixed white and black, singing just as I am together. Um, at the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement, because he actually started this kind of before the Civil Rights Movement really became, um, you know, front page. And so when the Civil Rights Movement really kicked up, he invited Martin Luther King Jr. to come and preach with him several times at his, uh, at his crusades. And they built a, a really strong friendship, um, which was later strained because as the Civil Rights Movement really picked up steam Martin Luther King um, believed he should Billy should kind of jump in and back it more than he was, Um, uh, and there was some some kind of tension there that Billy wouldn't uh, fully join into the the civil rights movement um, the way Martin Luther King Jr. thought he should. But but they were friends throughout. Um, And then during the season, he began to travel uh, around the globe to preach for the first time. Uh, He went anywhere that would have him. Um, he believed he had this really uh, cool way of talking about ministry. He said, the human heart is the same everywhere, and the gospel never changes, so ministry is really pretty easy. The human heart is the same everywhere, and the gospel never changes, so ministry is pretty easy. Um, once he had kind of preached everywhere that was normal around the planet, all the places you went, um, he started preaching in places you didn't go. He preached in South Africa during apartheid. Um, And they told him that there was just absolutely no way he could remove the the barricades there. Um, But he did. He took them down again. And in the middle of apartheid in South Africa, once again, he has blacks and whites worshiping together and coming to Christ together. Um, During that time, he also became a pen pal to Nelson Mandela, who was in prison at the time. And uh, the two of them stayed um, close friends for the rest of Mandela's life. Um, he started to preach on the other side of the Iron Curtain, which any of you who are alive in the 70s and 80s know that was unheard of. In 1959, he got to go to Moscow as a tourist. Um, obviously, didn't get to preach at all, but got to see Moscow, and he had a dream in his heart of one day getting to preach the gospel there in, in Moscow. Um, but in the, in the 70s, he, uh, he preached in Hungary, Um, The Hungarian uh, government said there was about a thousand people that showed up, but CIA operatives who were kind of in the area, you know, this was the big CIA time in the Cold War, said there was probably at least a hundred thousand people that came to hear him preach. Um, But the Hungarian government wouldn't release any of that, so they, they, they publicized that about a hundred, or about a thousand people showed up to hear him. But, uh, he preached in Romania, he preached in China and North Korea. And then in '77, he got invited to speak at a peace summit in uh, in Moscow, and he was only speaking to delegates and religious leaders. Uh, but it was a it was a big drama because um, everybody knew it was a propaganda ploy by the USSR. Uh, they were they were putting on this peace summit, and it was kind of to say it was kind of to, to to give America a black eye for the arms race. Like these guys are proliferating nuclear weapons. And so they're putting on this peace summit as a way of kind of picking on the U.S. And they invited Billy Graham to speak at it because they figured what bigger black eye could you give America than to have kind of America's preacher um, come and speak at a Russian peace summit. And so, but he decided to do it. And uh, he had a dream of preaching in Russia. And so he accepted and, uh, the Soviet Union was kind of declaring victory before it even happened. Like, we've got Billy Graham coming. That's just how on the right side of things we are. And, uh, and when Billy Graham spoke, um, he kind of duped everybody because he just stood up and proclaimed the gospel. He didn't talk about, you know, peace. He didn't talk about putting down arms. He didn't talk about, you know, ending the arms race. He just preached the gospel. And then he said to all the delegates, you you know as well as I do, the only hope for this world is Jesus Christ, and you have a responsibility to tell your people that. If you're not out proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you're not for peace. And uh, and so um, the black eye, I mean, the, the U.S. kind of got a black eye because Billy Graham spoke, and the USSR got a black eye because he didn't say what they wanted him to, and... Uh, and he flew home they said on the plane he gathered his people on the way home and said that this is probably the end of our ministry but i really felt like that's what god wanted me to say and uh and so he expected to get home and just be you know the country's whipping boy for a while and he was he came and there were press conferences and everybody was attacking him and and uh, how could you do that and uh but he decided to uh that that's what god wanted him to do and so um so he did take a, a bit of a black eye there publicly, but um, it never changed. Nothing really changed. He was still, he was still Billy Graham um, and eventually became kind of the counselor to the White House. Um, he, uh, he advised Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Ford, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, G.W., Obama, and then all the way to visiting um, Trump. Um, he, uh, a lot of Christians didn't like the fact That he was so uh, plugged into um, to politics, Um, but every president who ever spoke of Billy Graham said that, um, you know, he was the most unassuming, humble man that they had spoken to. He would mostly listen, and he would always share what he felt the Bible said about something. He never came in leveraging for, like, lobbying. Never came in leveraging for a for a, a political thing. He just whenever he would come in as a counselor. And when they would say this is going on, that's going on, he would open the scripture and say, well, this is what the Bible says. Um, you do what your conscience tells you to do. And and uh, he wasn't pushy, he didn't judge. Um, after his trip to the communist bloc, uh, he, he, what he saw there, he got really kind of um, concerned about the poor, especially places that had been traumatized by natural disaster or war. Um, and so he started to fly into these places whenever something bad would happen. And he almost always took Ruth with him um, because he said she was way better at it than he was. He was like, I can preach to crowds. She can talk to hurting people. And so he would always grab Ruth, and, and uh, they walked the, the war-torn streets of North uh, Ireland, the aftermath after the earthquake in Guatemala, which is here. Tsunamis, cyclones. He was on the ground um, after the Oklahoma City bombing with Ruth, uh, praying for people. Um, in fact, uh, he called GW um, to find out if he could get into Ground Zero after 9-11. And they had a service going on at the Na- National Cathedral um, in Washington, and they wanted to get Billy Graham in to, to speak, but um, all the planes were grounded. If you, re- if you remember, nobody was flying anywhere. There was no commercial flights Um, So the morning of the service, um,
1: there was only one commercial flight in all of America that day. I don't know why
0: that's getting me so much. And it was bringing
1: uh,
0: Billy and Ruth to Washington.
1: But even at the height of his fame,
0: he still preached churches. He still uh, went to small country churches and preached. Um, He preached in prisons. Um, There's a famous uh, prison in Memphis where they bust in prisoners from all the surrounding prisons, which is so weird to think of, um, to hear Billy preach. And so he did a crusade in a prison. And uh, while he was shaking hands with inmates at the end, um, which... uh, his, his body men were not real comfortable with, um, you know, cause he just kind of walked out in the crowd to say hi to people and made everybody uncomfortable. He was with there with Chuck Colson and, and, uh, Chuck Colson had kind of come up and said, Hey, I'll, I'll catch you later. I've got a thing that I normally do now. And, uh, and so Billy's body men were trying to usher him out of there and he was like, hold on, I want to go with Chuck. And so he followed Chuck Colson into the solitary confinement wing cause those guys never got to hear it. And Chuck used to go down cell by cell and pray for people. And and he said that Billy insisted on preaching the gospel at every single cell. And so um, and so, he wouldn't just pray for them. He wanted to make sure they got a chance to hear the gospel. And so there's a famous picture of him squatting. Because um, the only way you could talk to him was through the little door they would pass food through. And so Billy squatted at every single door and preached the gospel to each individual um, in, in solitary. And, and this one guy who was on death row accepted Christ and and Chuck Colson says that Billy spent more time with that guy than he did in the crusade part outside preaching to the to the crowds but um he caught flack from a lot of uh, uh, Christian leaders um, for stuff like this because they believed this guy was worthy of death why why spend so much time on it? the things he did was horrible his family was mortified that Billy would preach to him and But Billy believed that every human, whatever skin color, nationality, ideology, whatever particular sin, that every single one of us were sinners, and that every single one of us were loved by Jesus and could be redeemed by the cross of Christ. And then finally in 1992, after the Soviet Union collapsed, Billy uh, got his dream. His dream came true. He was able to preach to a packed stadium in Moscow, and thousands and thousands of Russians came to Christ. Um... And then in two thousand five, he preached his final shoot, his final crusade. And uh, I was, as I'm sure some of you were, lucky enough to.
1: get to take some of my oldest sons
0: to Arrowhead. And we all freaked out together, you know, when we watched thousands of people, probably hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of people, go down to the, to the altar and accept Christ as Billy Graham invited him to do so. Um, he led millions of people to Jesus. Um, if you count television... He preached to billions of humans face-to-face. He preached to more people than any other preacher in history. Um, and even uh, even with all of this, you know, I've barely scratched the surface of, of his life. And I could spend weeks talking about the way his staff felt about him. Uh, I couldn't find a single, like, complaint from a staff member. They all thought he was amazing and humble. Um, the way he would protect himself from sin is incredible when he was on the road. Um, I've always been inspired by that. The way he raised his kids and loved his wife, even though he was super busy. Um, you can literally teach on him for a year. Um, but I thought what was most meaningful this year, especially to Open Table, was just Billy's tenacious grip on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, his simple-minded focus on one thing. When you look back at his life, um, he was absolutely surrounded by every possible temptation known to man. And I'm not even talking about like, the obvious temptations, the, the stuff that we know we're supposed to stay away from. Um, uh, his sexual purity and, and, and things like that. He never struggled with drugs and alcohol. He's got a story where when he was young, his dad made him and his sister drink whiskey until they both puked at a really young age um and he said that was all it took i never want to do that again so parents if you want no way to, no i did, i'm not advocating for that but um but even though he stood incredibly firm against the normal temptations what impressed me the most the way he stood against the really good temptations the the righteous temptations let me explain um when he was questioned questioning his faith in the scripture He wasn't being challenged by atheists. It was his friends who, for the sake of studying more deeply, were inviting Billy into something more intelligent and more academic and more theological than than just the gospel. And most of them pulled away from Billy because he refused to to get that deep into the worlds of philosophy and debate. And Billy said, "I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to preach the gospel." And so he wouldn't go into that. And that's a, that's a great temptation. This isn't drugs and alcohol. This is theology. And Billy wouldn't go. As he got into the secular, the secular talk shows, he was offered fame. All he had to do was water down his message a little bit and he would have had his own show. And America loved him. He was as handsome as a, as a movie star and, and compelling. And, and all he had to do was water it down just a bit. And he would have, he would have had his own talk show. They offered him his own talk so several times. He could have had America on a silver platter. But he kept preaching the gospel until they quit having him on. When Billy Graham grew to hate segregation and he saw it as antithetical to the gospel, he took a stand. But when the Civil Rights Movement wanted to recruit him as a face and make that movement the big thing, he knew that wasn't for him. He was called to preach the gospel. And so even though it was a worthy cause, even though it was a great temptation, he knew it would distract him from his purpose. Billy Graham had the ear of every president from World War II to present, and every political debate was at his disposal. He could have fought for every cause that we as Christians hold dear, right in the Oval Office. But he knew he wasn't called to politics. Billy Graham could have thrown himself into relief efforts He started to funds and foundations to help places that were torn up. And and he felt compassion pull on his heart and tug him to do so. But he also knew he was called simply to preach Jesus. For me, what sets Billy Graham apart was his ability to avoid distractions and stay the course. I have no doubt that Billy would have made a great theologian. He would have made an, an amazing Hollywood celebrity. He, would have been a, he could have been an actor, a talk show host that actually had values. I think he would have been amazing at that. I have no doubt for a moment that Billy Graham could have been a dynamic voice for the civil rights movement. He could have been a stellar politician. He would have no doubt revolutionized every relief organization on the planet. But not a single person would have faulted him for doing that. But it wasn't his call. And none of those are bad things. Everybody would have celebrated that Billy Graham went that route. But in a dorm room in Bible College in Florida, God called Billy to preach the gospel. Not to do all those other things, to preach the gospel. And what's most amazing is that by holding firm to the gospel... You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who had more of an impact on all those other areas. You'd be hard-pressed to find anyone who, who uh, had a bigger impact on the church, any theologian that had a greater impact on the church. You'd be hard-pressed to find a, a Hollywood actor who had more fame or was more beloved. You'd have a hard time finding anybody who had a bigger impact on the civil rights movement or swayed 13 presidents over 70 years. And it was all because he wouldn't get off the course. I believe had Billy thrown himself into any one of these more fully than he did, it would have been great causes. But he would have missed out on all the rest. If he had become a if he become a theologian, he never would have talked to presidents. If he become a politician, he never would have helped the civil rights movement. If he if he thrown himself into relief organizations, he wouldn't have talked to thirteen presidents. In Matthew 13, uh, in what is called the parabolic discourse where Jesus is just giving parable after parable after parable in this kind of elongated sermon of parables. He's trying to come up with word pictures for what the kingdom of God is like. In the midst of this kind of odd list of illustrations, Jesus tells these two really short parables. He says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovered hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hit it again, sold everything he owned to earn enough to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great price, he sold everything he owned and bought it. We live in a world of distraction. And I'm not even talking about our cell phones. We, We all know about those. We all know those are rotting our brains. I'm talking about good distractions. Distractions to do good stuff. There are a million good fights to fight. Some of them theological, some political, some are social justice fights. Some are fights for exposure and influence. And there are serious global issues we could fight for. And the thing is, none of them are bad. They're all amazing things. Any one of those fights is a great fight. But only one pearl is the pearl. Only one treasure is the treasure worth buying the whole field for. And that's Jesus. And I believe when we put Jesus first, we have the potential to have an impact on all the other stuff. The world is broken by sin. And Jesus is the answer to that brokenness. So how do we respond to this? Billy Graham was an evangelist at his core. I mean, that's what he did. I'm a pastor in my core. Um, I, like, my heart is for the local church and for the health of believers. And though I love seeing people come to Jesus, I, Josiah and I bawled. We stood in Arrowhead and watched people go forward. One of my favorite stories, Esther, we told it the other night, we were newly married. We were a big crusade, and they gave an altar call, and this is back, I don't even know if we had a bank account, when I used to cash my check every week, and I've got my entire paycheck in my pocket, and, and they were tricky, because they gave the altar call first, and then they took the offering, and that got me. That's where they got me, and so they give an altar call. Hundreds of people go down. The bucket comes around, and I just grab my whole paycheck and throw it in there, and I watch my wife stiffen up next to me, like, what did you just do? But... I love seeing people get saved. Don't get me wrong. I like being involved in people's lives, and I, I I count it a privilege to get to help people carry burdens and grow closer to Christ. I'm I'm a pastor, but um, that leaves the question: What does it look like to tenaciously grip to the cross of Jesus Christ when you're a pastor and not an evangelist, or 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 when you're when you're not the Billy Graham out preaching to huge crusades, or Or maybe more appropriately, what does it look like to cling to the cross after you know Jesus? And what I think that looks like, especially at Open Table, is we try not to get caught up in debates. Here's the deal. The scriptures are complex, and I believe there's an objective right and wrong in the entire scripture. I think there's an objective way to understand each passage. But I also know the smartest believers in history have debated over it for 2,000 years, and any hopes I have of figuring it out exactly right are pretty slim. The reason there are still debates is because it's tough. It's complex. And we could, we could easily get caught up in debating those things. And, and we could, I could stand up here and try really hard to get everybody on the exact same page of this list of doctrines that are important to us. And if we did that, we would follow the classic lines of division that the church has done for years where it's more important to be right than to be together. Or we can believe that He loves us when we're right and He loves us when we're wrong. At Open Table, we study the Scriptures together and we, we let the, that study change us, but in no way is our goal to get us all to believe the exact same thing on every single issue. In fact, if, if, if ever I come up and preach on a passage and you totally disagree with the way I teach it, that's Okay. In fact, I'd love it if you'd share that with me and and we'll wrestle over that and then we'll come back the next time and worship Jesus again together. I hope you disagree with me sometimes. It'd be kind of creepy if you didn't. A whole room full of people agreeing with each other terrifies me. Weird (laughs) things happen. Weird things happen when a whole room full of people agree with each other. (laughs) Nice. Nice. As central as, as the Bible is to what we do here, we do not let our passion for any particular doctrine draw us away from the cross. The cross has to be more central. We could get caught up in politics. Believe me, I, I'm not unaware of the moral implications of our political climate. Real people are affected in very real ways by our politics. And the temptation to make the church life about securing a particular political platform is a strong one. And it's an absolutely unbiblical one. In Jesus' day, things were just as po- divided politically. Any, any time one of the Pharisees or Sadducees would ask Jesus a question, it was a politically loaded question. They were saying, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were divided on it. They wanted to get Jesus' opinion so they they knew which one of them could co-op Jesus into their party. What, this was not people coming to learn something from Jesus. They were... Every single one was a loaded political question. And he wouldn't do it. They'd come and say, what do you say about this? And he would go, there was a man who was walking down a road. Like, he would, he would the kingdom of heaven is like a fish. And you're like, well, that doesn't answer the question at all. So if you're hoping that, that we're going to back your, your political platform point here, it's probably not going to happen. We can't allow politics to drag us away from our focus on the cross. We could become all about social justice, all about growing a big megachurch, all about having more impact on our community. We could become about one of those self-help churches, churches where we take a series on parenting and we follow it up with one on finances and a quick study on how you work as a good Christian, and then maybe one last one on marriage. And, and we could leave here the best version of ourselves possible, and none of that would be bad. But I think even the desire to live our best life can be a distraction away from the pearl of great price. Just because your hunting dog locks on point doesn't mean the thing in the grass is what you want it to be. Sometimes we're just locked on a raccoon. The Apostle Paul described his ministry this way, I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus, the one who was crucified. I think if Billy Graham teaches us anything, he teaches us that the best way to have the greatest impact on all the areas that concern us is to follow Paul's advice and to know nothing but Christ crucified and i'm i'm a grace preacher i'm captured and captivated by the grace of god it's i love to talk philosophy and psychology i love politics and sociology and art and literature i'm very eclectic in my personal tastes but at the end of the day it's a
1: picture of a prodigal son <laughs> Walking down a dusty road
0: with his head down, rehearsing his lines as his father runs to him
1: to smother him with love and acceptance
0: that makes my guts come up in my throat over and over and over. And I tend to get frustrated that people think it's either grace or law, that people think that, you know, you're either going to be a grace church or or a rules church, a holy church, a law church, that you're either accepting or you're legalistic. And I reject that notion completely with every fiber of my being. I, I went to kind of a theologically liberal church for a little while. And they had an amazing ministry to the homeless, which I fell in love with. Um, we reached out to the homeless um, a lot at that church and, and made some amazing relationships with those people. Um, and I was really intrigued with the way people who were um, more politically liberal still love Jesus. I honestly at that time didn't know that was a thing. I thought the only reason to be liberal was because you didn't love Jesus. And so I was, re- I was literally like, like, wow, these people are really in love with Jesus. How can that be? And so I was really intrigued by that, um, and when we finally decided that we, we really couldn't stay, um, it, was because it, it wasn't because they focused too much on grace. It was because it didn't feel like grace existed. Grace means undeserved favor, unearned, unmerited favor. And if you don't talk about how sinful we are, if you don't talk about how undeserved we are of grace, then grace is meaningless. When you go in and everybody just loves you and accepts you, and nobody talks about how broken we are, then you can't have grace. And grace is what grabs my heart. I don't need someone to tell me I'm okay and I'm awesome. That's meaningless because in my heart I know better. I need someone to tell me that I'm selfish, I'm a sinful mess, I'm a wretch and a a wicked sinner, and yet Jesus loves me. To him, I'm the pearl of great price. I'm the lost sheep. I'm the prodigal son. We don't accept you at open table because we, we assume you're a decent person. We accept you because we know you're not. And yet Jesus loves you anyway. That's why in every church service we pray the prayer of contrition. We remind ourselves that, that we didn't love God and we didn't love our neighbor the way we were supposed to this week. That we failed yet again. We regularly admit here that we are sinners. And then at the end of the service, we gather around the table. And we remind ourselves that even though we are sinners, He loves us and gave Himself for us. And we sing and we pray and we bless kids. We study God's Word. But ultimately, we gather to remind ourselves that we are sinners. Wicked, nasty sinners. And that God loves us anyway. Whatever else we do, we can never get away from that message. I need these confessions every week. I'm a hot mess. I've fallen on my face over and over and over again, and I would love to pretend like most of my wickedest sins were before I knew Jesus, but that's not true. I'm a mess. If, you, if you, Some of you guys are fairly new here. If you put me on a pedestal, I will fall off every day. Like I'm, I'm not a pedestal type guy. I'm too heavy for a pedestal. (laughs) I'm a sinner, and I know it. But I believe with everything in me that I'm a sinner that Jesus is madly in love with. I believe that Jesus would go to any crazy lengths to rescue me from my sin because he loves me that much. I don't deserve to be here. You don't deserve to be here. We stand here in the presence of God for one reason and one reason only. The love of Jesus is utterly, completely unstoppable. His love would, would and did go to hell for you. And I believe with everything in me that Billy Graham had it right. This is what we need. This is what the world needs. To know we are loved, incredibly loved, completely loved, inexorably loved. There are a thousand other great messages, but this message... This grace message is what the world needs. That we are wicked and broken and sinful and that God loves us anyway. So when we face times like 2020, when we face darkness, we don't need to know that everything's going to go our way. Every single one of us knows that's it's not. That's not the norm. Stretch this thing out long enough and none of us get out of it alive. We all know the longer we live, the more pain and loss we're going to experience. We don't like to think about it, but if pressed, we all know it's true. I think the thing that makes the darkness hard is that it starts to bring up the why questions. Why is this happening? Is God upset? Is He not even in control? What's going on? The question isn't, am I going to survive this? Because we know, stretched out long enough, we don't. If you don't realize that, you you probably should. (laughs) That None of us get out of this alive. This is The question that haunts us is, does God love me? And that's the one that starts to get, when you're going through something hard, does God love me? Does this thing I'm going through negate that? So please hear me today. Jesus loves you. I don't care what you're going through. He is out of his gourd, crazy in love with you. He's gone to complete and absurd lengths to show it. He left heaven and entered our mess because He loves you. He absorbed the ridicule of lesser, people lesser than Him. He suffered not only bodily harm on the cross, but abandonment from His Father because He loves you. Never doubt that. No matter how dark it gets, please never doubt that He loves you. If you get every other theological reality wrong... Don't get that one wrong. You are more sinful than you ever dared admit and you are more loved than you could have ever dared dream. I believe if we can have those two realities in our, in our head, the way Billy Graham did, Billy Graham believed every human heart is broken and God loves every single one of them. If we can hold those two realities in our head, that we are, you're a sinner and Jesus still loves you, I think it'll change you. Is there more to learn? Sure. Is is there more to debate? Absolutely. Are there more fights to have? Certainly. Are there hurting people to help everywhere? Definitely. But I think the only way to, to do it right is to know you're a sinner, an absolute sinner. You can't look at somebody else and go, yeah, but they're a bigger sinner. But Jesus still loves you.
1: Let's go to the table.